House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. Dave Martino. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, yes. no. No. <laughs> no, no. No, no. How you doing, Al? I'm doing okay. Busy That's week. Busy week yes. with all these uh, uh, murderers and stuff, yes. you know. But that's okay. Somebody's got to do it. That's right. So now we are picking up where we left off yesterday, and today we are um, going to be talking about uh, who killed Melissa Witt. And we're going to be talking with the author of two different books, uh, LaDonna Humphrey. So thank you for coming on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. Well, LaDonna, let's, let's talk about you. How did, um, how did you find yourself doing what you do, like getting into this, uh, writing and podcasting and, and following up on a, on a murder case like this? Where, where did it start? You know, it started back when I was really young. As a young child, I was in a bowling alley with my sister and a man attempted to abduct abduct my sister and I and so that that was thwarted and we're okay and I testified in court against that man and then as I um, grew and became older I was interested in crime particularly because what had happened to me at such a such a young age I was very impressionable I was in the fourth grade you know just I was curious and I also had a knack for writing I really loved writing and so as I um, enrolled in college, I studied journalism, and I just had a natural pull for um, asking a lot of questions, sort of an investigative mind, and that's really just how this all happened. Um, and then when the Melissa Witt case came to be in Arkansas in 1994, um, and she was abducted from a bowling alley, that really hit a chord with me because of my, you know, attempted abduction at a bowling alley. I guess, as you can say, the rest is history. How, how do you separate your own um, history with the bowling alley and the attempted abduction with when you're getting into the uh, story of something like Melissa Witt, like when there's, you know, um, obviously there's going to be similarities and stuff. How do, you, how do you keep that to not affect your writing or research? You know, for years I didn't really address um, what had happened to me. You know, it was the... It was the late 80s, and we didn't know a lot about childhood trauma then, not like we do now. And when that, that started to surface for me um, many years later as an adult, I realized that there was a lot of trauma that I had. And so I dealt with that, I mean, to be quite honest, through therapy, jumping in and kind of facing it head on. And so a lot of that's really been dealt with um for me personally, and my my experience was, you know, different than Melissa's. You know, obviously, I'm I'm alive and well, and so I just keep it separated by addressing what's traumatic for me, which a lot of that's already been done, and then just focusing on what I can do and to be a voice for her because she no longer has a voice of her own, and that seems to work for me to keep the two things separated. You mentioned, you know, the the abduction at the bowling alley, and then your the attempted uh, for you, and I'm just wondering. Are there are there places that are more dangerous? Is this just a case of because the places where I guess young people hang out, 
that you'd be more likely to have uh, predators like this uh, attempt to do bad stuff? Or are there um, places that you know that uh, you really have to be extra vigilant? You know, I think that's a good question. And I think that the best way to answer that is, in my situation, I was a child. And that particular predator in that instance was a pedophile. And they tend to navigate towards places where, um, you know, children congregate. And that's going to be a highly populated places like a bowling alley or a sports field or, you know, those kind of things. So I think in those situations, I think parents, that needs to be a cautionary tale for parents. If you look at just statistically where those type of people are going to hang out to try to snag a child or try to lure a child. And I think in Melissa's instance, you know, she was 19. I think that was, it's a little bit different. I think, um, you know, we're not looking at a pedophile in that situation. And I think that, you know, really all of us just need to be more aware of our surroundings and the people that we associate with and the places that we go because crime can happen anywhere for an adult. I don't think there's any one place that's more significant than an, than another for an adult. I think it's a little bit different when it comes to a child's case. So how is it that you um, found this particular case? Was, was Did you see it on the news? I mean, you said you did, but how is it that you – found it to actually go and look into it. So I remember hearing about the case. I was standing in my parents' living room. I would have been 21 at the time. Melissa was 19. So I did hear about it on the news. And I was in in shock about it. She was a college student. You know, how did how does something like that happen? And so I did always follow the case to some degree. But then I went on as an adult and I um did volunteer work with other nonprofits. I did volunteer work for another agency in our state that offers services to missing children and their families. And through that work, I discovered that there was a real discrepancy in services for families that have missing adults. So with all that said, um, some time went by. I, I got a group of people together and we founded our own agency called Let's Bring Them Home. And for almost two decades, we worked with families that had missing adults and did everything that we could to help navigate that horrible, horrible loss for them and try to get justice or at least resources. And then when it was time for that agency to wind down, um, we saw the rise of NamUs, which is a government database that could do what we were doing much better. You know, it tracks missing and unidentified, you know, remains, missing people, all of those things. And so our services weren't needed, and our board of directors decided that we were no longer going to be an agency. And we wanted to finish our work really strong, and we decided to do a documentary. And I really thought we were going to work on a documentary about the plight of missing adults in the state of Arkansas, but my board kept coming back to the Melissa Witt case. And I'm going to tell you something that's ironic, is that I fought that bitterly. I was passionately against it. I kept saying she's not missing. Her body was recovered. It's just an unsolved murder. This is not a missing persons case. They outvoted me and sent me to the police department in Fort Smith to talk to detectives about Melissa's case because they were really interested in that case. And just something happened in that moment when I talked with investigators and saw their passion. You know, that's when some of my own stuff started to bubble up, you know, from my past about what had happened at a bowling alley for me. And 
I decided to dive in deeper. And I think that's where the irony is in this, because I went from one extreme to the other, you know, not wanting to take the case. But then when I learned about the details and knew that it's a solvable case, that she just needed a champion to advocate to keep her case alive, I just really dove in, and that's how I got involved. I've been doing this for eight years now. So how were the police to interact with, um, not only at the beginning, but throughout when you're trying to investigate or find, get to the bottom of a case like this, and you're, you're out talking to people and you're kind of in society doing things and online, how are, how are the police towards you, or, or are they kind of put out, or are they, are they okay with it? Like, how does that interaction work? I think every agency is different. So in this particular case, um, you know, Fort Smith Police Department, they really embraced the thought of a civilian getting involved to champion the case. Maybe not in the beginning at an investigative level, but just as an, on an awareness level. And they liked the idea of the documentary. And so as they got to know me and as I launched a Facebook page and started to, you know, give you know, media interviews and do the things that I was doing to keep Melissa's case alive. And I was asking questions and people were coming and talking to me. I actually uncovered some important information for police and gave it to them and said, hey, you know, I can't talk about what that is now, but, you know, some things in the case. And that made them, I think, see some value and it built some trust. And so that was where we kind of started our partnership. And I have a really great partnership with retired detectives and the current detective on Melissa's case. And so, you know, I I know I said this before, I think it's different in every situation because I have other police departments and other cases that aren't willing to work with me as closely. So I think it just depends. But in this particular case, they saw the value and they have embraced it. And we've worked very well together to make tremendous strides in Melissa's case. Do you think cases like this um, are really kind of showing that the police do need more resources in, in murders and crimes and that there's a lot of unsolved, uh, I guess, mysteries, for a better word, but there's a lot of unsolved crimes out there that um, it would would should be solved, and maybe it's the resources. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's only about sixty two percent of cases, murder cases, that are that are solved. And you know, speed is of the essence when you're looking at solving a case. If you can't get it solved or get some pretty good leads and evidence in the first seventy two hours, you're going to have some serious problems down the road. And you know, to be able to have the kind of time that you need to invest in those first 72 hours does take resources and manpower. And most departments don't have that because crime is always happening. All kinds of crime is always happening. And it's, it is a problem. It's become a, you know, a huge problem all the way across the United States. There's all kinds of issues that you can get into. And I think most departments, you know, the guys and and gals that are, you know, in blue, they want to solve these cases. But with that lack of funding and manpower, sometimes it's almost impossible to do it because they just have more and more and more cases that are on their desk every single day. So let's do a rundown of the basic parts of this case. So what exactly happened to Melissa Witt, and what what do we know? Um, December 1st, 1994, started out as a pretty normal day. She woke up, was getting re- ready for school, asked her mom to borrow um, a small amount of money 
until she got paid the next day. Her mother said no. They argued briefly and then went about their day. The mom, Marianne Witt, felt pretty guilty about the argument, left her a note that morning before she went to work and said, hey, I'm sorry that we argued. Come see me tonight at the bowling alley. I'll buy you a hamburger. Love you, mom. Melissa went about her day. She went to school, went to lunch with a friend, and then went on to her job. She worked until 5 o'clock, got off work. Her car wouldn't, wouldn't start. It was a brand-new car. Of course, that's pretty, you know, suspicious in any you know, any case that you look at, if there's a crime that's committed or somebody goes missing, you look at the events that happened. And so that was looked at pretty closely. But as it turned out, Melissa had just left a light on in her car, like the dome light. And so it didn't start. She got it started, went home, changed clothes and went to the bowling alley. She never made it inside the bowling alley. She was attacked in the parking lot and just didn't come home that night. Her mom was concerned this was out of character for Melissa. She started calling friends and family. Nobody had seen her. And so by 9 o'clock the next morning, she had called police, and a patrolman came out to her house. And this is where the case initially goes sideways. He takes the report. You know, it's the early 90s. We don't really have any kind of cases like that in Fort Smith, Arkansas, of somebody going missing. And, you know, he asked Marianne, did you have an argument? Is there some kind of fight? And when Marianne told him that they had argued that morning, at that point, the patrolman pretty much dismissed this as a runaway case or somebody who was mad and took off. He took the report. It goes on his desk. And Melissa's friends and family knew something was wrong. So they did a massive search. They were printing flyers. They were doing everything they could do to find Melissa. And that's how the major crimes unit in Fort Smith found out about this case. They saw it on the news. It hadn't even made it to their desk because of the patrolman's decision that this was just somebody who left home and was mad. And so she goes missing on a Thursday. By Sunday, the major crimes unit gets wind of this case. They get boots on the ground and they find her car immediately. It was still in the bowling alley parking lot. They found a crushed hair clip. They found, you know, blood, you know, blood spots. And so a massive search you know, happens for Melissa for weeks until six weeks later on January 13th, a call comes in from the Franklin County Sheriff's Department. A body had been found in the Ozark National Forest an hour away from the crime scene. And it was the body of a nude white female. And dental records then proved that that was the body of Melissa Witt. With that happening, what did the police do as a follow-up? Did they uh, did they find any witnesses to her outside of the the bowling alley, or any anybody making noise, or her fighting, or struggling with anybody, or did she have any bad friends or people that she associated with that they knew were kind of not the best people, or where where did it go? So the police immediately follow up. They put out pleas for information. On, on the news, and that's when the first red herring of the case happens. Somebody comes forward and says that they saw someone that looked like Melissa Witt arguing with an African-American male in the parking lot. So, you know, police went down that road. Tons of tips came in. It turns out it was just another couple. It was not related to Melissa. But that sort of sparked then these calls coming in that Melissa had been abducted because she owed a drug debt all kinds of crazy rumors started. And the truth is, is that Melissa was just a normal 19-year-old 
teenager, good kid, was in church every time the doors were open, you know, never had a true enemy in her life. There were no drug connections. But those two particular avenues of the case wasted a lot of time, you know, a lot of resources. But it it obviously had to be looked at. And really, we don't know what happened to Melissa. I mean, there was never really anybody that definitively could say, hey, I saw her in the parking lot that, you know, that day. That's made the investigation difficult over the past almost three decades. But the, the, the strides that we've made in the case have led us to the point where we're at today. And we do believe that Melissa was abducted and murdered by somebody that she knew that met her in the parking lot that evening and argued with her. And so we're still looking, we're still looking and hoping for some witnesses and DNA testing and all kinds of things in her case. But that that's really the bones of it. I mean, it's a completely solvable case. It's just been really overwhelming. Do they have DNA from um, on the, on the victim, on Melissa from the assailant? They, um, have some DNA that is degraded that they could test that's still left from, uh, you know, fingernail clippings. And at this point, if we test anything else, that'll be the last shot that we have because there won't be anything left after that to be able to test. And so at this point, law enforcement, law enforcement is really just waiting for perhaps more um, advancement in technology with DNA because of the state of the DNA that they do have left. So that's really unfortunate in this case. But that's that's really where the DNA situation is at this time. Well, who, who were the suspects or, or did they have any? They interviewed almost 300 people. A lot of them were sex offenders. The main suspects were a man named Charles Ray Vines, who was an active serial killer in the Fort Smith area. You know, his victims were primarily elderly women that he would beat and murder, and then he was into necrophilia. Melissa hadn't been beaten at all. She was strangled. The only bone that was broken was associated with that strangulation, you know, her high, her hyoid bone. And so there was nothing that indicated that Vines was connected to that murder, including his, you know, his M.O. Another main suspect was, and technically still is, Larry Swearingen. He's from Conroe, Texas. You know, he was arrested four years later in the murder of another girl who was also named Melissa, 19 years old, abducted from um, a parking lot at a community college. And she was found, also found an hour away um, in, an, in a national forest, and she had also had been strangled. And her abduction and murder was almost, it was four years almost to the day of Melissa Witts. And so police really looked at him because he had been in Arkansas in the area just a couple of days before Melissa Witt went missing. And, you know, we've all spent years on that that lead as well. And there's just still no definitive proof that Swearingen was actually in Fort Smith. The closest that we can place him is two hours away. And then another suspect in the case, his name is Travis Crouch. Um, He was living in the area. In fact, he lived on site at a church camp growing up with his family that was about a mile away from where Melissa's body was found. And he was looked at pretty closely because several years after Melissa's murder, he was arrested for kidnapping and raping a girl and taking her to a remote mountaintop, really similar to 
you know, Melissa being found on this remote mountaintop in the Ozark National Forest. And that girl escaped with her life. And so he's been looked at pretty closely, too. Again, cannot connect him to Melissa's murder. It's just been maddening. And then there's another person that's looked at who has not been named publicly. He knew Melissa. He knew her pretty well. And he has a history of violent crime himself. And so he's he's being looked at, too. But those are the main players that law enforcement have looked at in this particular murder. Have you yourself had a chance to talk to any of those suspects? I have. So I corresponded with Charles Ravines while he was still alive and in prison. Um, lots of letters back and forth. You know, he denied any involvement in the case. He says he had no reason to lie about that because he was already in prison for life and he, you know, confessed to all of his crimes. So, you know, for what that's worth, that was my correspondence with him. I've corresponded with Travis Crouch, who, you know, adamantly denies that he had anything to do with Melissa's murder. Again, he also says that he's innocent for the crime that he's currently incarcerated for. So you have to take that for what it's worth. And then I I have absolutely had contact with the unnamed suspect, and I have for years. So um, with all of that going on, and no one's really been captured, so to speak, yet or, or been charged with it, is there anybody else within her circle? Because you're saying it could it could have been someone that knew her. It was likely that she met someone, and they argued. So she must have known them, you know, well enough to have something to argue about. Um, is there somebody else in the circle of friends or family that you are aware of that could fit that? I believe the person that murdered Melissa Witt is on police's radar right now as we speak. I believe his name is in Melissa's diary. She did leave a diary behind. I believe that it's someone, um, you know, he interacted with Melissa, and I believe that she spurned his advances and he could not handle being told no. And I think he lashed out at her in anger. And then it was a series of events after that that happened. But I absolutely believe that we are hot on the trail of who killed her. And I believe that his name, like I said earlier, is absolutely in her diary and that he is absolutely on police's radar. How old would he be now? He would be in his late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, it's been a while. When you're doing all of this uh, investigating and you've spent seven years and written two books and done lots of media um, how does this affect you at the end of the day? How, how are you um, feeling uh, going through all this work? Oh, that is not an easy answer for me because, one, nobody ever asks me that, so I'm kind of taken aback. It's a good question. It's overwhelming. Some days it's really difficult. It's um, emotional work. You know, I have seven kids. Five of them are daughters. And, um, you know, I do this kind of work for them, you know, keep them safe, you know, send a strong message out there that we're not going to accept violence against women, you know, those types of things. But it's it's hard. You know, I have some reoccurring nightmares about the case and I look at the world much differently than I did before I was involved. An example of that is just the sheer number of sex offenders that were looked at and that were living in the area and had to be questioned because of Melissa's murder. You just don't uh, you just don't know what's going on in your own backyard. Most people don't. I think they would be mortified to know how many people um, are just kind of lurking around with some pretty deep, dark secrets. And 
that's that's been a heavy burden to carry. Um, and it's changed my life in a lot of ways in terms of safety issues, going places where people know who I am now, being approached about the case, you know, in a grocery store setting when I'm with my children, you know, those kind of things have it's it's been difficult. Um, it's something that I've had to adjust to and then kind of reframe how I live my life just to keep myself and my family safe. Yeah, you have to be careful. I know. I'm there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you just be surprised at what kind of people will approach you. And especially on sensitive cases like this, you just don't know. And that, that leads me to how do you how do you kind of uh, weed out um the crazies, so to speak, or how do you how do you sort of um make sure that um when you're getting people telling you things or sending you emails and information, what's your sort of pattern or system of trying to confirm things without getting drawn into something that could be bad? So there's a couple of different things that I do. You know, there's there's hundreds of people that contact me every year in this case and in other cases, but specifically with the WIT case, you know, there's a lot of information that the public doesn't know that I'm privy to. And so that helps weed out what information is true. You know, I take every tip that comes to me or through my tip line or through website seriously. I, I, uh, I document it and I turn it over to police immediately. And, you know, that absolves me of hanging on to anything that I shouldn't because I am not law enforcement. Right. Um, and I make sure that that's turned over, but there's a lot of things that I go ahead and turn over that we already know is not of any consequence The you know, it needs to be documented, but we know that it's not pertinent to the case just based on other investigative work that's been done. That's in the case file. So there's that. But then I think the scary part is, is the information that comes in about other crimes or other situations that comes to me. That's a little trickier. Um, obviously I always turn it in, but I have to be careful with how I respond. Um, you know, I used to be of the mindset that I could, protect myself and people wouldn't know who I am because, you know, I was kind of working behind the scenes, but that's kind of changed because I've now kind of been on the forefront of this with Melissa's case. And so that makes um, some of the correspondence I get, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes I receive death threats or scary information from people who are trying to take credit for murder and other things. And so it's, it's not easy. This is not glamorous or fun by any means. It's, it's important work. It's work that needs to be done. But it's also been pretty taxing on me mentally and emotionally and um, definitely eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah. You get to see people more for who they are uh, that you don't experience necessarily when you're out of not in that kind of business, so to speak. Right. Um, what is it um, when someone picks up? the book or both books themselves and they read it and stuff. Um, what is it you hope they get out of the books? Like, is there some, some meaning or something uh, in particular that you're, you're hoping for with readers? Yeah, I, there is one is that I want Melissa to be remembered and remembered well, right? Cause I write about who she was as a person because she was so much more than this thing that happened to her on December 1st. She was so much more than just her murder. And so I want people to remember Melissa and be sad about the life that was lost and let that be a cautionary tale to them and about how to keep themselves and their family safe. 
So there's that. But then it's also a continued message to her killer and others like him that there are people like me who want to keep stories alive, who are going to stay determined and keep the information out there so the case can be solved. So it's almost like a message to her killer. I mean, it is a message to her killer. At the end of The Girl I Never Knew, I do write a letter directly to her murderer. And and I know, you know, that he'll read it because I know he has the book. The, the one, the man that I think murdered Melissa, I know he has a copy of my book. And so, you know, there's that. And then I just want to tell other people that you can advocate, maybe not on this level for um, a cold case, but you can get involved and there are things that you can do. And even if that's just picking up the book or sharing the information on social media or just remembering a victim. And so those are the those are the things that I hope that I can convey in these books. So the man that you think murdered Melissa and you've got the note in there, a letter kind of written toward him and stuff. Is this is this guy someone that do you think has done this since Melissa and continues to live this type of of violent lifestyle or is he just was this just kind of a, a one happening with him i don't believe it was a one happening with him no no i believe that he's um killed at least one maybe two other women and i believe that he could kill again uh, he's dangerous he's violent and i think he's soulless so um and i think that the more pressure that's put on him because of the books and, and the documentary that's getting ready to come out and all of those things that, that he'll get sloppy and make a mistake. That's my hope. But I definitely think he's watching. I mean, the, the, the man that I believe murdered Melissa, he contacts me. He tries to stay engaged with me to some degree and has for years. And so um, that makes it even more interesting because it's just like a little cat and mouse game at this point. Yeah, that must be kind of terrifying a little bit in a way. Um, if you're, you know, you knowing something in your mind, like this person's dangerous and he's contacting you uh, for his own reasons. And uh, th- th- doesn't that kind of put you on a, on guard a lot? It does. It's very frightening. And when that came about, you know, he contacted me after I launched. I launched a Facebook page in October of 2015, and it's just called Who Killed, you know, Missy Witt. And that page grew. There's like 14,000 people that follow that page now. And he's one of them. And he got my phone number and called me one night and started talking to me and crying about Melissa's case. And all kinds of red flags were going off. But I didn't know who he was. His name didn't mean anything to me until I called. After I got off the phone with him, I called the retired detective, J.C. Ryder, and said, hey, do you know who this person is? And you could have heard a pin drop. He was just rattled he said how did you hear that name and when i told him he said you need to tell me everything that he said to you and then police called me in a few days later and we had a meeting and they did share with me that he was an unnamed suspect in the case and they shared everything with me that they know about him and so i continued for the sake of the case to correspond with this man and it wasn't until my first book the girl i never knew came out that he probably really ever realized that I thought he was involved with her murder. I don't name him in the book, but I write about several of the phone calls that he made to me and he knows I'm writing about him. So, you know, there's heightened awareness for me and security measures now in place. 
because of that. So, yeah, it's scary. Well, uh, but are, are, has he contacted you since the book has come out? Yes. And, and yes. does he sort of talk like he knows you know, or does he not? No, it depends if he's under the influence of alcohol or drugs or not. There's been a couple of times where he's accused me of, you know, thinking that he killed Melissa. But for the most part, it's more of a game that he likes to play um, just to see if I'll talk to him uh, or just to see, you know, how much he can learn, uh, you know, extract information from me, which he's never been able to do. But I think that that was the game he was trying to play. So I don't hear from him as much now as I did prior to the book because he's now more aware that maybe I was a little bit smarter with this than he thought I was. And so, you know, that's dangerous in and of itself, but that we had to get the case to the point where it is now, you know, I had the blessing of law enforcement to write the things that I did. Um, because we, you know, we want to push him to act in one way or another, you know, maybe, maybe even confess, but you know, he's definitely being pushed at this point. Well, I, I hope he, he's not married with kids and all that too. He is not. No. Oh, well, that's a relief in a way. Yeah. Right? Ooh, um, crazy stuff. Now, okay, so how do people find you, the book? Um, do you have a website, social media? Let's list all of that so people can get a hold of you if they have information or want to get find out more about the books. Sure. So there's two ways to get in touch with me. That's through my website, which is LaDonnaHumphrey.com. And there's links to the books and all the other things that I do. Um, or you can go to whokilledmissywit.com, and you can find about the case and the books there as well. You can Google me, and all of my social media accounts will come up, and I'm very responsive. If somebody emails or sends me a message through social media, I will respond. Um, and so, you know, that's I encourage people to do that, especially if they think they have information in the case. I don't care how small it is. I do want them to come forward because you just never know what little piece of information could tie everything together. And so I take every, every contact, every tip very, very seriously. Of course, we'll have all of that up on the website as well. So people can find you or find the information, the book, you know? Um, so what's next? Where are you going from here? Like what happens? We are going to release our documentary in, in um, May. It'll be on May 20th. We're going to do a, a showing here in Arkansas, and that's something I've been working on in the Wit case for eight years. I've got four more books coming out this year. Um, I've got a, a follow-up book, a third book in the Melissa Witt series, and then three other books about true crime, just different avenues. That's no longer – it's no longer about the Wit case at that point in those books. And then um, just focus on my podcast, you know, my – we launched this podcast called Deep Dark Secrets. We launched it in September, and it's just growing like wildfire. We just hit 14,000 downloads yesterday, and, um, you know, we are really proud of that work, and we're doing a lot of investigative work into a really dark online community and trying to make a difference there. So that's that's where my focus is going to be. Well, fantastic. Well, we're, we're glad you were able to come on and, and talk about uh your research, your books, your podcast, your upcoming documentary, and everything. So now, uh, of course, both books are out, and they're covering the Melissa Witt um, murder case, and our guest is the author of those books, uh, LaDonna Humphrey. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. Thanks, LaDonna. 
You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.